during the time when the elections were happening, you know, political unrest was very present, civil unrest was very present in society, we would have members of our, our church family. And I say family because we were there for, like I said, 14 years. And they would walk up and they would grab my hand and they'd start rubbing it and they would say, I don't see color. And I would think to myself, I know what you're trying to say, right? And I think what people are trying to say is, as, as you stated, right? They're trying to be like, you know, I wasn't raised to see difference. I wasn't raised to see color. I wasn't raised to, to notice it or pay attention to it. I was raised to treat people as human beings. But what they don't recognize is by saying, I don't see color or putting a statement on their social media page, it actually is creating more harm than good. Hello, and welcome to Voices with Talking Talent, the podcast that explores the real issues people face in the workplace. This is a space to have the open and brave conversations that inspire change and spark action. We're Talking Talent, and every week we'll be joined by a different guest. Stay tuned for discussions on the issues that business leaders are trying to overcome and what the future looks like for truly diverse and inclusive organizations. Welcome back to Voices with Talking Talent. My name is Kuleen Jones, and I get to be your host today. Today, we're going to examine and challenge a very sometimes well-meaning statement that is actually very problematic. And that's the statement of, I don't see color and other statements like that. And joining me for this much needed discussion is Dr. LaTanya Jackson. Let me tell you about Dr. Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a dynamic forward thinking director and she has extensive experience in workforce development, thought leadership, change management, instructional strategy and facilitation. She's a passionate and dynamic human resources professional who's highly skilled in collaborative partnerships individual and group coaching, and people development. She's also done extensive, ex extensive research on the experience of Black women in Fortune 500 companies. So we're very fortunate to have her join us today. And we're going to also be talking about the book she co-authored, which is called Five Blinders to Seeing Color. Please join me in welcoming Dr. LaTanya Jackson. Woo! Hey, y'all! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here, you know, because this is one of those statements, the I don't see color thing and other phrases like it, that's actually very common. And a lot of people, although they may understand that it might be more harmful than good, they don't necessarily get why. I was visiting a um, Facebook page the other day. And it, you know how sometimes you get into these mini debates on, on different posts that uh, these magazines do. And I decided to say, Let, who are these people? I had to go to someone's page and see who they are based on some of the things they were saying in their comments. And I get over there and I saw that they had this post that said, it basically said, I don't see color. It said something like, I don't recognize what color you are until you say something about it. I don't recognize that you're gay unless you say, and it just went all down the list with things related to race and gender and all the different types of identity. And I thought to myself, 
I bet that this person thinks that pinning this on their page makes them come across as welcoming and that they're they're more aware than they actually really are. And it reminded me of the conversation that I knew we were going to be having about the I don't see color thing. So I want to get into this with you. Why do you think that people are continuing to push this whole I don't see color thing? What is it that people just don't get about it? I think that's a great question. At one time in my life during the last few years, we, my family and I, we've been at, at a particular ministry for about 13, 14 years. And during the time when the elections were happening, you know, political unrest was very present, civil unrest was very present in society. We would have members of our, our church family. And I say family, because we were there for, like I said, 14 years. And they would walk up and they would grab my hand and they'd start rubbing it and they would say, I don't see color. And I would think to myself, Mm -hmm. I know what you're trying to say, right? And I think what people are trying to say is, is, as you stated, right, they're trying to be like, you know, I wasn't raised to see difference. I wasn't raised to see color. I wasn't raised to, to notice it or pay attention to it. I was raised to treat people as human beings. But what they don't recognize is by saying, I don't see color or putting a statement on their social media page, it actually is creating more harm than good. And so I finally hit a a breaking point where, you know, and this was during the time Angela and I were, Doc Courage and I were getting ready to write this book. In fact, I think it sparked it a little bit more that it was urgent that we help people not make this mistake and just, you know, saying to the people, I know what you mean. And I know what your heart is because I've walked with these people for 14 years, but it didn't change the fact that I was still a black American in America. Uh, You know, like I live in this country and the color of my skin does create some hindrances and some differences. And just because you love me doesn't mean other people who don't know me or know my husband or my boys, right? Know if Maurice is coming in from, you know, work, he works at the postal service, he goes to work at three o'clock in the morning. He's got a hoodie on because he's throwing freight. Well, if you don't know that's what he does and you don't know him and he makes a, a move, you know, all kinds of things could happen. They don't, un- they didn't understand that he could get stopped in the middle of the night. Who knows what could happen, right? So all of the different things, and he, now he travels in the middle of the night to some of these smaller towns. And I happen to live in Arkansas and it can be really concerning, right? So being very mindful of the fact that people want to appear welcoming. They want to say that they they recognize the human uh, aspect of a person as opposed to the race or the ethnic background of an individual, which you can't see. Often you can't tell the difference between those two. You might think you know, but you don't. And as a result of that, they are in fact actually causing harm and, and creating divisiveness. And they may not even fully understand it. The good news is there, there was a group of people that I could talk to and just say, you know, you shouldn't say that, right? But I couldn't reach the masses. And when George Floyd's incident happened and Doc Courage and I decided that we would, um, that we needed to write this, it needed to happen. Like we need to write the book and help people understand we know what you're intending to say, but the impact of what you're saying doesn't match the intent. And that's something I think people need to make that connection to. Yeah, that's so important. When you said 
people don't realize that when they say things like that, they are actually highlighting the very thing they see they don't say they don't see because you're not saying among people who look like you randomly, you know, I don't see color. You wouldn't say that then. You're only saying it when you're encounter encountering other people of color. And as you talk about your work with Doc Courage, I wondered you as a black woman and then her as a white woman coming together to write in this book, what would, does the conversations look like with her when she's addressing people versus when you're doing it? Because for some folks, and I, I wanna hear what your uh, response is for people who are outside of your family, your church family that you spoke with, I wonder, is it being well-received when you say to someone, I don't see color versus when Doc Courage, for example, might be saying to someone who looks like her, I don't see color. What have you all seen as you've tried to really lovingly correct people with this? Yeah, so it's interesting. We did a, we actually just, she and I just did a, presentation, I guess, is if you want to describe it, where we were introducing the book to a Sunday school class uh, about a week <laughs> ago, and it was all white people. And that was really interesting, okay. all white people, but the person that we were in communication with happens to be a Black female, and she's very passionate Black female. And so, you know, you, you wonder, like, I wonder what else they're doing up in here, right? But <laughs> I think what we discover, uh, th these were older white men and older white women, a whole other generation, right? Who lived at a time that was very different than the times we live in today. And when Angela speaks, people, they pay attention, right? Because there mm -hmm. is a white female, someone who looks like them that they can relate to, who's saying, you know, here's my experiences being different, living in another country, living, um, coming back to America and being different because of the fact of how I grew up, because she, most of her younger childhood days were in Germany. And so coming back into the Southern, <laughs> the wonderful South, as I like to call it, she had some experiences of her own. And then she married uh, into um, Hispanic culture, uh, further exacerbating her family, right? Just, just, so she is a person who embraces the differences. And she's very much well-received in this community that we're in. When I say it to people, what we usually do is we say, she has more of the church lens. She's going to bring that. I'm going to bring more of that corporate lens to the conversation, but they still hear me because I'm not beating them over the head and I'm not making. That's what ma that matters. Yes, mm -hmm. it absolutely does. And I choose to educate. It is a choice. It's not always easy. But I have trained myself and I learned this from a wise black female who was an executive leader at a fortune, a large, a fortune 10 company. She's since passed on. But I remember her saying to me, there's two, there's always two ways to respond in these types of moments. You can choose to educate or you can choose to be angry. And I remember thinking, well, I choose to educate is what I've always done. She says, then that's fine. You know, don't, don't let it get under your skin. And I think as black people, we are triggered because of the, tra the trauma that's been in our bloodlines, it's been in our family histories, it's been in the evidence that we've seen with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the uh, many other names that we could begin to, to speak about, it's there. And there's a historical context to why it's there. And then that, per you know, wealth gaps exist and persist because of the fact that just the simple color of our skin and how we were treated. And, you know, it doesn't discount or take away from 
the Jewish people who were the Holocaust and, you know, they were thrown in gas chambers. We don't discount any of that, but we don't want to, and many people have embraced all of that as truth and reality. The issue here in America is we've not wanted to embrace our own history. Even Germany's embraced the fact that part of their history mm-hmm. was they were mm-hmm. part of the Holocaust. They were they were essential right. integral members of that. So, you know, they've had to recognize and accept we haven't done that here in America yet. And so I think it just exacerbates it. So when Angela says that, when Doc Courage says, I don't see color to white people, it is received, but it doesn't mean they don't receive it from me. They just are able to better receive it when we are there together, as opposed to if I was the angry black woman coming in with a lens that's not a heart of love. And for me, you know, my heart is to love people, to listen, to uh, make observations, to value them, and to hopefully educate and empower them into that next. That's what love is. And uh, in part. And so if we do that, it's more palatable and opens up the opportunity for conversation because many of us don't know how to have conflict conversations, right? Those we, we just start talking and we get angry and all these emotions and we don't even know where our emotions are come from. And so um, one of my coaches, she, she says, you have to think about your thinking. You have to be metacognitive and especially have in this environment, especially when it comes to the dynamics of race and ethnicity and genderisms, et cetera, is being, think about your thinking. Where did the thought come from that you're experiencing right now as it relates to a person you're engaging with? If you are angry, why are you angry with them? You know that most people don't know these things. They don't know that saying, I don't see color is doing more harm than good. They don't recognize their intent is positive. Therefore, they think the impact is positive when in fact, it's the opposite. And I think as we can educate, the words I left with that group last week as it related to seeing color was start with your own family, start in your own house. We can't go out here and change the world. We can start with where we are and the people we are interacting with. And if I walk up to a Black person and say, you know, hey, let's not let's not be so volatile toward people, right? Give them a chance to explain their intent and their meaning and that, you know, and then share how it impacted us we might be able to move this thing further along. As if I were saying that to one of my white friends or colleagues, hey, don't say I don't see color, <laughs> right? It's harmful <laughs> that people don't get your intent, right? Like that's yeah. not cool, don't do that. And you see, I can do that with both sides. I can do in this, using black and white as an example, but my Hispanic family, my Mexican family, my Asian friends, I can do the same thing because I can maintain that I'm thinking about my thinking. I'm thinking about in the Asian culture, it's different. In the Black culture, it's different. In the Hispanic culture, it's different. In the white culture, it's different. And giving that we weren't socialized to talk about race and color. In fact, we were socialized to do the direct opposite of that, right? You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about race and ethnic ethnic issues. You don't talk about these things outside of your own house, outside of your own social network. Well, guess what happened? We have social media, we have political unrest, we had civil unrest, and we had a global pandemic happening. <laughs> what are we going to talk about? All the Ugh. things that are happening around us, yet we weren't right. on how to talk about them. So we've got to get to a point. So I, sorry, walking around your question, but hopefully I- No, this is, this is great. When you talk about coming from that place of love, we call it um, here talking talent using empathy as a leadership superpower. Really, that's what it is. Because there are things that used to send me over the edge. There was no 
no space for empathy there. But now that I'm addressing these things from more of looking at things through an empathy lens, if you will, then that is when you can educate. And we can talk a little bit later, though, about how sometimes that can be exhausting, though, because oftentimes what happens is the person who is on that side that's being harmed actually are doing a lot of the educating. And when there's resistance with that, too, it can lead to fatigue. But you're you're oh, yeah. so right about that. People have to learn the skills to be able to have these conversations so we can, you know, move that along. You say in the book, you and Doc Kerr say in the book that we need to move from color blindness to cultural sightedness. Talk to me about that. What do you mean by that? Oh, so I'm gonna give you a little history in order to explain this because we were really writing this this started out as a training program we were designing for a a government uh, grant project opportunity that happened to be with the national endowment of the arts and it got canceled and you know a whole bunch of things but we had this idea of how do we make transformation so we're going to shift people from being colorblind to to cultural cultural sightedness And so what we mean by that, um, just to give a little bit of that context, right, is when you think about many of us are blind, we have blinders on, right? So you think about a horse, a horse, if they're wearing blinders, they can't see to their left or their right. They're just going straight ahead. They're moving in whatever direction they're being driven. And so when you think about color, right? We've all moved in the direction we were taught or driven. Therefore, we couldn't exercise empathy. We couldn't necessarily, or, or we're, you know, just, just be angry, just be mad about it, or just discount everything that they ever do. They're always lying to you or, or whatever story you might've been told and how you were socialized in that particular arena. And so we have this color, like, I don't see color. Well, that's that color blindness is like, well, if I say I don't see it, then, you know, it'll be okay. And then you're, what you're doing is you're discounting my presence and my existence, right? One of the examples we use in the book is uh, how many of us have seen a red light, right? Like we all go to, if we drive anywhere, even if we're walking, we see lights. If we're on a bicycle, we see lights. If we look around us, what do we see? We see color everywhere. Everywhere we look, color is present. But if we put blinders on, we only see the color that we wanna see, what's right in front of us. And so essentially color blindness is all about that and not recognizing the cultures, not recognizing the differences. And so we are calling people to a place of cultural sightedness where you recognize and understand culture, the environments that people are in, that you're not just blind to the fact that not everybody does it the same way you do. Um, I recently heard this example and I was like, this is such a great example. I'm gonna start using it in my trainings. Think about, um, are you right or left-handed, Kewing? Right. Right-handed? Okay, well, for Uh all our... Would you say you're a left-handed ally? I've never even thought about if I'm a left-handed ally. Exactly. <laughs> That's being blind. We never, if you were wow. born right-handed, you just expect the world to be right hand Like everything you do is and designed. In, in a way, it's kind of designed that way. It is. It's designed because guess what? The majority of us in America and around the world are right-handed. But imagine if like, you know, go brush your teeth with your left hand for a day. I've tried it because I've um, I tried it once as a brain exercise because I've heard if you try to do things with your less dominant hand, it you know it kind of helps with yes. your focus and your memory. 
And I grew up in a time where kids were kind of forced, might not be the right word, but I'm going to use it to be right-handed. I remember being in classes and teachers saying, use your right hand. And they would have those little something that they would put on the pencil or something to try to get the the students to to hold it right. So it's like, we're going to just make you right-handed, you know? So yeah. And I remember, yeah, it's it's so right. We all have some areas where we're blind. We don't think about when I write on a right, a, a notebook with my right hand, the notebook is designed for me to write on it the way I want to imagine the left-handed person they're smearing all their notes mm-hmm. when they write with their left hand That's on that right. same notebook right so they're yeah. as simple as that like that blindness that we're talking about but being aware like if you were to try to write with your left hand all of a sudden you might find oh my goodness the world is not designed <laughs> For, for left-handed people. The scissors are not designed for left-handed people. You have to have left-handed scissors. Otherwise that cutting is kind of weird and the thumb and how it works, right? So that's essentially what we're talking about. Thank you. Thank you for that example. So that's- and the fact that's- that they're even called, I want to pause and to bring this out because I think this is worth highlighting. The fact that they're called left-handed scissors versus- Scissors. Scissors. So the fact that they've got to have this alternate name is still in a way excludes it. It's them. It's an us versus them kind of thing. It's another. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what the color blindness and cultural sightedness. That example is one that I choose to share with you because I was thinking of an example. How can I share this in a way that makes it more palatable? And so when you think about the fact that you, it's just scissors, I'm just going to go get a pair of scissors. Well, essentially most people in the dominant culture, it just is, I'm just, I'm just going to go do this. And they don't have any mm-hmm. awareness of the fact that, wait a minute, my hair is different and I can't, I, I might have to wear it straight today because I'm going for a job interview. They are my, they, they might not be aware of the fact that just because you can afford to live over here, that you actually aren't paying. I'm not actually getting paid the same amount as money as you, but you think I am but I'm actually not. I'm actually getting paid $50,000 less than you, right? Or $20,000 less, or, you know, it's 84 cents to every dollar, depending upon the group that you're describing. For some, you know, the wealth gap. Well, when my parent, when their parents pass away, there's an inheritance. When our parents pass away, I must use myself as an example, right? When generations before me are passing on, most of the time, we're still trying to find, gather everybody together so we can pay for the funeral. We, there's, there was no expectation that there was life insurance or an inheritance left. So there's all mm-hmm. of these different aspects of life and living that are blind, that people in the dominant culture are blind to, and color being one of them, right? I use finances. I use a whole bunch of different examples there, but it's that same, it's that same example of the world is just designed to work for you, and you don't have to think about this. So our bringing people to a place of cultural sightedness has to do with just using the the scissors right and left-handed, right? The world was designed Mm -hmm. for right-handed people. But if you are left-handed, then there's extra things that you have to go through. And how do you, as a right-handed person, become more aware of where you you can be an ally uh, to the Mm left-handed person and advocating for there to be scissors that are created equal, (laughs) That there can be a notebook that's designed for the left-handed person to write 
in the same way and not get smears all over their arm um, or lose half their notes because of that, right? And that's essentially what we're talking about is doing that, but doing it for color, doing it in the same way of looking at race and color and really any and all aspects of this inclusion spectrum. Very important. And I like, love that example because as you think about the ally piece, it also is a reminder to not just educate yourself, but to observe and ask questions, what do people need? Because there is a big allyship gap between what allies do versus what that group might actually need. Uh, a more recent example is there's been a, a lot of talk in pop culture about Lizzo and Beyonce using a certain word in their songs and that word being offensive to people who are living with disabilities. Well, a lot of organizations and activists from that community have since come out and said, we're not offended by that. The, this, and, and then I heard one say, this is another example of the ableist community trying to speak for us, where for them, that wasn't it. And in the 2021 Women in the Workplace report, they kind of touch on this. They talk about the percentage of people in corporate America who identify themselves as allies. These are predominantly white employees that they surveyed for this. It was 70 something percent of people who identify as allies, but less than 50% of those 40 something percent, you guys, I'll have to put that report in the comments because <laughs> I'm just adding the word something because I don't remember the exact, but a significant, a significant amount of those same allies were actually not doing consistent allyship actions. And of that, the actions that they were doing were not things that the community, which were Black women, Latino women, Asian women, and LGBTQ women, and women with disabilities, were not the things that those people said that they wanted. They were saying they wanted mentors, sponsorships, but allies were thinking me nodding in agreement and, and saying yes is being an ally. And there yeah. were some other things, but that was just, you know, I'm yeah. just being no, silly I, right yeah. I, I It was have... things like that. So it's like, find out what people want to. I don't think that should be missed as we're helping people, including ourselves, be more cultural sighted. Mm -hmm. Knowing what people need, not what you think they need. Yes. And allyship, I don't remember how they defined it. If that was the, the I, I was just looking at the McKenzie report. I haven't finished it yet. So I may not, okay. I haven't gotten to that part. Here's how I, some research that I was doing. Allyship is defined uh -huh. as an intentional decision to learn about the lived experiences, thoughts, and challenges faced by others and choosing to empathize and act in support of someone else in the way they want to be supported. Mm, that last part. <laughs> the way you were saying, I think most definitions to be supported that piece, but it's the, the in the way they wanted to be supported and how, you know, what I, again, going back to how do we get cultural sightedness? Well, think about how you want to be supported. You know, if yeah. you were, if this was your reality, how would you want to be supported? What does support look like? What actions would you want people to take? 
Uh, and how would you want them to take that actions? And how would you want them to empathize with your position? And being able mm -hmm. to ask yourself those questions can help create some of that cultural sightedness, which ultimately leads to mm -hmm. cultural connection. And when we do that, right, we can start to remove the blinders. And that that's mm -hmm. ultimately our goal is how do we help people start to remove those blinders? And in the book, you and Dot Courage identify five blinders. What are those? They are anxiety and uncertainty. That's one blinder, um, which has to do with our um, anxiety, has to do with our emotional processes, with uncertainty dealing with our thinking process. Blinder two is power misused. So we all have power, just how are we using it? But when power is misused, it can create blinders for people. Egocentrism is blinder number three. And that's all about our sense of self. And we talk about individualistic versus collectivistic cultures and the differences in that. And then uh, number four is ignorance, uh, which we all, right? Again, just the example mm -hmm. we just shared on this podcast today of left-handed versus right-handed um, and thinking about the differences and the nuances and the experience of those who are left-handed as opposed to the world being designed for right-handed. So where are we ignorant? Where's our education? Where do we need more? Mm -hmm. And then immaturity, which has to do with the history of race and uh, equality in America specifically, right? Understanding how we were socialized. And I know I've referenced that several times in our conversation, but really understanding not just the story you were told or what your life was like, but really taking the time to understand and recognize what the history has done to create the lives of others. And as we do that, right, then we can begin to, we can get, we can become less ignorant. <laughs> I won't say we'll be completely uh, out of ignorance. We will still, there still will be things that we will learn, um, but we can become less ignorant by doing the research and understanding and moving, you know, and recognizing the trauma impacts and the things that get in the DNA. There's all kinds of research that supports all of that, that immaturity, right? When you have trauma, you can be stuck in specific ways of thinking and specific actions and that blame shame we talk about with the anxiety and uncertainty. So all of the things are connected, but recognizing that if we can address them one at a time, we can start to move, move the needle. I hesitate to use the word heavy. And the reason why is because our head of diversity and inclusion here, as well as other um, officers who are in that space, I've heard them say things like, when we say that these are heavy issues or delicate or sensitive issues, that kind of lends it to uh, almost have people think this is a burden, this is, is too much to, to be thinking about or something like that, versus these being just necessary things that we all have to figure out as people. I will say though, that for some DEI professionals, and then just sometimes for diverse talent within an organization, it can feel at times like a lot. And there's this a term, you've probably seen it too, DEI fatigue that people are experiencing, whether it's people working in the space or people who just feel like they're tired of hearing about it as well. What is your advice for people who are kind of feeling like that, whether they're on the side of feeling like they always have to educate or, or feeling like nothing's changing or transforming quick enough, or for those people who are in organizations where they have to participate in DEI programming and training, and they might feel like, I'm over this, I'm, I'm tired of this, it's, it's too much. And have you dealt with that yourself, by the way? I have. 
you know, I did a lot of this work when I was in college or in, in backstory, we had a cross burning, we had a professor use the N-word and his email was called Hibbler's email. You could probably research that and find this sort of thing. And then we had one other incident. Uh, I must've blocked it out of my mind because it was that bad. But we had a lot going on. Um, and I went to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And so, you know, predominantly white institution, that's what they're, they're formerly known as in higher education. You know, we had these incidents and all within a month or two months of it. I mean, it was very close together. And so there was just a lot going on. And I was, uh, you know, part of the Black, uh, we were going to host the Big 12 Conference on Black Student Government there that year. Uh, and so a lot meeting with chancellors and meeting with people. And so for like years, we were just, I was just kind of in all of this, speaking about things we had. Um, I can't remember the represent, what his name was, but, you know, I, I personally don't get into politi- politics, but we had a guy from California. It was a black gentleman. Uh, it was related to Proposition 209 or Prop 209, I think was the number. Um, and I could be wrong on that, but he came to visit and people convinced me to go to this lecture to see this you know guy and uh he was up there talking and I still remember he was talking about uh how people didn't help him but then he shares this story about his grandmother and how he wouldn't be the man that he is today uh, again black man wouldn't be who he is today without his grandmother and his life and how she raised him and took him in and all these things but then it was like the flip story of I got here, I got to this stage in my life of being where I am and knowing as who I am without help. And I was like, this doesn't equate for me. And so I asked him a question. He got angry with me. <laughs> and, I get. and so after dealing with all of that for four years, I was like, I don't mm-hmm. want to touch inclusion, diversity, or equity in any way, shape, or form. I was like, I'm done. That, that was it. That was too much being called upon all the time to answer questions to get the, you know, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, it, it's a lot. And so I really didn't. So when I got into the career field, people were like, oh, I think you'd be so good, you know, working over here. Are you part of this? The NAACP, are you part of this? I was like, yeah, I've been there doing all these things. I'm not doing it anymore. And so mm-hmm. I didn't. I'm a member of a sorority. And uh, so I stayed active there. And, you know, we have our pillars and things that we're connected to. So that was the extent of my engagement. And then I'm in corporate America and I'm working and I work in talent development in the HR space. And, you know, it's, it's starting to creep up and people are like, you know, I think you'd be really good. Mm-mm, don't put, don't you pigeonhole me. I am not going over to DE and I am not going to work over there because you can get stuck. And again, now, do I choose to educate? Absolutely. Everywhere I am, but I can educate you everywhere I am. I do not need a title to do that. And so I didn't. And so when George Floyd, we all watched it, right? We're sitting there and I could barely watch it. I'm very um, emotional uh, in that way. And so I was like, I'm a couple minutes in and I'm breaking down. It's like, we got to do something. I got to do something. And that's when I reached out to Doc Courage and said, it's time. We had tried to write this book before. Many, many things happened. Um, she She's cancer free today, but she had breast cancer. We were walking through that. I ended up having another baby. Like every time we sat down to try to write these, this book or a version of it, it would not work. But when that incident happened, I knew it was time. And so we did. Now you fast forward. Now I facilitate these sessions all the time. I, I'm currently on a sabbatical <laughs> from work. Okay. I yeah. I was going to ask you, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do to replenish yourself? Yeah. I think you have to be, be burnout is real. Burnout can happen in many forms. And so if you're in this space, I do think you have to take time away right? To recharge. 
and allow yourself to just be without having to educate or or in whatever capacity you've been serving, do something, just do nothing. It's okay. That's absolutely okay. Make sure you have a therapist. I think that's um, important, a therapist or a coach. I think those are important aspects of doing this work. Somewhere you are safe, where you can talk about, you know, what happened in the session today, <laughs> um, you know, and if, you know, that person got angry with me or whatever, um, I could share many stories, but the things that happen and how I have to stay neutral you know, and I see the political things, you know, I literally was facilitating on the day of the insurrection. 90% of my class session were white corporate American people. And I had to just pause in the session and go, do we want to continue this session today? Because obviously there's a whole lot of emotion. So recognizing it for yourself, I think is also important. Recognizing when you might need to step back or cancel the session because you are emotionally charged or triggered. I'm working with a, a client right now doing some facilitations for their organization. And I think they are doing a beautiful job of this, but they're actually having the conversations and they're putting it all on the table. And I think as trainers, facilitators, and what educators in whatever capacity you choose to do this work, you have to be able to have the hard conversations, but making sure that you're not triggered by the conversation when you're having it. And so having, taking time away as often as you need to, making sure you have a coach or a therapist or a combination of the two so that when you are triggered or when things are going on, you have a safe place to talk about it and you're not burdening your friends and family, right? Because we're, if we're all doing this and we're all educating, we're all talking about it, then you're just, it's just fuel to the fire for all of us and none of us gets relief. So going to the people and the professionals who can actually help you move forward past it or identify why you were triggered or help you to walk through it. So the next time you encounter it, um, or if you choose not to encounter it again, whichever decision you make and be willing to make that decision that, you know what, I've done this. It's great. I don't know if I can continue to do this because of how it affects me personally. That takes real strength to be able to recognize. I gave myself two to three years in actually doing the work that I'm doing right now. And we'll see where I'm at, you know, but I did recognize I was frustrated. I was stressed out. I started yelling at my kids. And then I'll, I realized one day when I had to facilitate the session, I was actually angry. I did not want to do it. And so there's a lot of signs along the journey. Um, and it requires you to maintain integrity with yourself and to be honest. I had to be honest with myself to say, Latanya, okay, you're angry. You love facilitating. So why are you angry about doing this session? And I walked myself through, I'm angry. Right? I had to think about my thinking. Why am I angry? And then you can do the five whys. Why are you angry? Why? Okay. When you answer that question, well, why did that happen? And where did, and, and what it was is I didn't want to do this work when I started, right? I had sort of put that stake in the ground many years ago. I said, yes. And I've been on this three, 22, almost three-year journey of actively engaging in this space. I have not had a break. I needed a break. And so I took one. Um, and that was not an easy decision. There's still, obviously I'm still doing the work, but the break, taking time away traveling, spending time, meeting new people, um, exploring new relationships, and just getting away from all of that, not engaging. Even if I see something, I make a note, but I don't engage it in that moment. I come back to it later when I have the space and the capacity, right? When I go back to work, I'll probably pick up a lot of the things that I've been seeing over the last few weeks, start to dig into them and say, well, why is this happening? And I'll do the research and we'll put some things in place. But that's, you got to do those things. You Ultimately, I'm saying, take care of yourself. If, if I summed it all up into words, 
It's just take care of yourself in the journey. And before you go, tell us about some of the other experiences that Sea Color offers and how folks can learn more about you. Oh, thank you for that. Well, you can go to latanyajackson.com forward slash inclusion and download a resource that talks about how to remove the blinders, right? I gave you what the blinders are, but you can get a free resource, join our email list. And with that, you'll be able to email. The emails come straight to me. Um, Most people don't know that, but they do come to me uh, and I'll read them and I do respond to them. You can also uh, sign up. You can get the book there. You can uh, reach out for workshops and presentations. We, as you just heard me talk about earlier, we were doing a, a, a Sunday school class is going to take our book and they're going to do a Sunday school lesson, which I found fascinating. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and they invited us to come and kind of do kick off the introduction. So we're always available for presentations, speaking engagements, podcasts like this, doing trainings. That's ultimately, uh, we have some training that we designed and that's how this all began. And so if Uh, you want us to come in and do some training with your organization. We're happy to do that. Thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in for this. Please like, share, and comment. Have a good evening, Dr. Jackson. And we'll see y'all next time. Thank you, QA. Bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Talking Talent. We're a coaching organization that helps you develop, advance, and retain your talent. Together, we can create a more inclusive culture where your people and your organization can thrive. You can visit us online at talking-talent.com. That's talking-talent.com. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.